0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: And it was a result of this deregulation that you've had the mortgage bubble, the real estate bubble, the subprime bubble breaking, and all of this was done by the Fed. So when Mr. Greenspan says all the Fed can do is lower interest rates, he's telling a deliberate lie, Uh, because what was he doing at the White House? He didn't go to the White House and tell Mr. Clinton, uh, gee, uh, all I can do is lower interest rates. he say, I'm going to throw all of my political weight behind you if you deregulate the economy, and I'll call you a good Republican. And that's just what he did. So uh, what he actually did is just the opposite of what he said he did in his autobiography.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show... How Alan Greenspan's Junk Economic Doctrine Helped Popularize Junk Mortgages Dr. Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst, and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super-Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of The Myth of Aid and Global Fracture the New International Economic Order. Dr. Hudson has been appointed Chief Economic Policy Advisor to the Kucinich for President campaign and in that role he is writing a new tax policy for the United States. On today's program we discuss former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan's legacy. Alan Greenspan has published an autobiography, The Age of Turbulence. We look at Alan Greenspan's role in 1982 as the head of the Commission on Social Security, his 18-year role as Chairman of the Federal Reserve, as architect of dollar devaluation, and his role in the 1999 repeal of New Deal legislation, the Glass-Steagall Act. Dr. Hudson, welcome again.
1: Thank you very much, Bonnie.
0: Well, uh, Alan Greenspan has been very much in the media, in the news lately, on every single program you can think of. And I wanted to begin today in our discussion of Alan Greenspan and his legacy and ask you about the Minneapolis Fed. Now, there's an anecdote there. Didn't they ask you to write an article?
1: Yes. For the last 15 years, I've headed an archaeological uh, in the serological group out of Harvard University on the, uh, uh, origins of, uh, economic civilization in the ancient Near East. And we broadened it from Mesopotamia and Egypt to, uh, Greece. And, uh, uh, they'd called me and asked me to write an article on, uh, debt cancellations and how, uh, early societies had dealt with, uh, the debt problem by canceling debts. And, uh, they'd apparently been asked to write something on, uh, liberty for their issue. And on the Liberty bell when it says proclaim liberty to uh, all the lands uh that quotation comes from Leviticus book 25 and the word in the hebrew bible for liberty was deror. And uh, the word really wasn't understood by the translators of the King James Version. And what they translated as liberty was a technical Babylonian word uh, that was actually anderarim, that became deror in uh, Hebrew. And it was what the rulers would proclaim when they would take the first year on the throne. And they would proclaim essentially a clean slate, and that would cancel the debts, free the debt bond. Uh, servants who'd been uh, uh, reduced to servitude uh, for debt to their creditors and returned the lands and the land rates that had been forfeited to them. And uh, this became essentially the Jubilee year in uh, a Jewish religion when uh, the Leviticus took these debt cancellations out of the hands of rulers and uh... made them the very core of uh... the mosaic law so uh... minneapolis had asked me to write uh, the babylonian background for the uh... jewish jubilee year and they'd hired an uh, artist to make a very nice drawing and in color of everything and that was to appear uh... In, i think uh... the fall issue a few years ago and uh... i got a telephone call from the one of them saying that Uh, well, uh, I'm afraid uh, the issue can't appear. And I said, you mean they objected to the idea that ancient societies could have canceled the debts and uh, everything went on uh, much better than before and uh, uh, there wasn't a crisis? They said, no, it's not about your article at all. It's about another article. And I said, well, what was the article about? And they said, well, uh, Alan Greenspan had asked us to do a survey Uh, among all of uh, the subscribers to the Minneapolis Fed's uh, monthly review, it may have been a quarterly review by then, as to who was the greatest economist of the century. Uh, And I said, well, who is it? Was it it Keynes? Uh, You know, maybe Schumpeter? My favorite economist is Thorstein Veblen, but that's probably too early. And they said, well, well, we can't really say uh, who it was. And I said, well, how can you cancel the uh, report? And they said, well, Alan Greenspan... Uh, told us to uh, uh, just uh, not publish the whole issue. And I said, well, good heavens, uh, why? There was a long silence. And then I said, well, he didn't think that he was going to be named the economist of the century. And there was a slight giggle at the other end of the phone and then more silence. And and I said, oh, I see. So obviously we're dealing with someone who uh, was very ambitious and uh, did not think of himself as he's presented him in the book merely as a technician, but actually wanted to think that he was putting forth a new theory and a, a new explanation and uh, to try to take credit for the, uh, the bubble years that were making a lot of people in the financial sector very rich by running the economy uh, into debt.
0: Now, I also noticed that you were interviewed by the BBC World Service and you are the quote of the day. I guess, were you then making up a quote from uh, Alan Greenspan?
1: No, they uh, quoted from an interview that I'd done. They interviewed me and Ron Suskind of the Wall Street Journal on Greenspan's legacy, because that was last Monday, the day on which his uh, autobiography was published, and they'd asked both of us to comment.
0: Now, your quote of the day says, if you look at the speeches he gave just before he left the Fed, it's pretty much, quote, After me, the deluge. I'm getting out while my reputation's intact.
1: Yes, he didn't actually say that. That's my paraphrase, my translation of what he meant. Uh, the last few speeches he gave with the Fed were very uh, pessimistic, saying, of course, uh, this trend can't go on. Of course, something's got to give. Of course, the stock market and house markets overvalued. But uh, he's then left the Fed and uh, has not taken any responsibility. And in fact, in his autobiography and in many of his speeches, he'd say nobody can tell when there's a bubble. Well, of course you can tell when there's a bubble. You can tell when debt is going up relative to income. You can tell when people are getting more and more uh, indebted and have to spend more and more of their income on debt service and don't have enough money to buy goods and services. Uh, Everybody else could tell except him, and now he's trying to act as if uh, he was simply responding to keeping the economy going when what he was doing was actually lighting it on fire. And uh, uh, he... Uh, Just managed to avoid responsibility, which is uh, somewhat funny because the whole uh, libertarian uh, economic philosophy that he supports says that people should take responsibility in their life. Uh, He made his reputation by shifting the responsibility of uh, the financial sector and the insurance company and the real estate sector onto labor uh, and avoiding responsibility. By deregulating them essentially, and uh, making the uh, uh, the weaker parts of society suffer and bear the cost,
0: so he wanted to be known as a great economist, but as you have pointed out, uh, a great economist puts forth a new theory, a new explanation, but Greenspan did not do that well did there he? was
1: one explanation that he did put forth, and that 's a very important explanation, and somehow, in all of the discussion about uh, his role as head of the Federal Reserve Board, they've ignored uh, the first part of his career, uh, which really took off in 1982 when he was appointed head of the Greenspan Commission to figure out how do you shift taxes off the rich onto the bottom 90 percent of the population? How do you shift taxes onto the middle class? And uh, he found a wonderful way of doing that, and that was instead of calling what he did a tax increase on the middle class, instead of calling it the largest tax increase on the middle class since World War too, he called it Uh, social security reform. And the social security reform was to make many workers pay more in wage withholding for social security than uh, they actually had to pay in the income tax, and to shift the tax burden away from the income tax by slashing the income tax rates on the highest brackets, cutting them in half under uh, uh, President uh, Reagan, while sharply increasing what workers had to pay, pretending that social security wasn't part of the normal budget budget, but was actually a user fee that had to be paid by its recipients instead of having to be paid by the wealthiest classes as it was in every other country and as it had been in America. Uh, The second thing he did was he realized essentially how to put the class war back in business in a new way. Uh in 1997 he gave a number of testimonies as head of the Federal Reserve Board and in February of 97 he testified before the Senate Banking Committee and he was trying to explain why uh unemployment was falling and yet there wasn't an increase in wages. Uh how did it come that unemployment was down to 5.4% just as in boom years like 1979 and yet uh with this fairly low American level why weren't wages going up? And he said uh, Uh, The explanation is that workers are so highly in debt that they've become traumatized and afraid to go on strike. I'll read you the quotation. He said, as I see it, heightened job insecurity explains a significant part of the restraint on compensation and the consequent muted price inflation. Surveys of workers have highlighted this extraordinary state of affairs. In 1991, at the bottom of the recession, a survey of workers at large firms indicated that 25% feared being laid off. In 1996, despite the sharply lower unemployment rate and the demonstrably tighter labor market, 46% 46% were fearful of a job layoff. And uh, Bob Woodward, uh, in his book on the Maestro, called this the traumatized worker effect. Workers felt that they were one or two paychecks away from losing their home because the Fed had uh, lowered interest rates so much and uh, the Reagan administration had slashed taxes on property so much that uh, what the tax collector gave up uh, was available to be pledged to banks as interest on higher and higher uh mortgages that pushed up the bank. So instead of uh the property owners getting the rent as before, the bankers were getting it. Uh now that the tax collector was standing aside. And so all these tax cuts on property didn't uh lower housing costs at all. What they did was actually raise the housing costs because the home buyers now had to pay uh, more and more money to the bank instead of paying taxes. And since they weren't paying property taxes anymore, uh, cities and states had to shift to imposing uh, income taxes. And under Reagan, uh, states had to raise more and more of their local funds under an income tax instead of uh, under the property tax. So uh, Greenspan, while pretending to fight inflation, had overseen the largest inflation in american history uh, the asset price inflation the bubble economy the stock market bubble and the real estate bubble and yet he presented himself as cutting inflation because the bubble economy had forced workers so deeply into debt that uh... they were afraid to go on strike and so uh, wages could be kept down and in that sense uh... he uh... did what i guess uh... economists are supposed to do these days uh, is expert witnesses in the kind of class war that was uh, developing under Greenspan. Uh, They used euphemisms and they used the terminology to reframe the issue so that people were running into debt, but uh, Greenspan called this wealth creation instead of debt creation. And this uh, wealth creation was making workers poor and poor, uh, employees poor and poor, the middle class poor and poor, because everybody had to pay uh, much more money to the banks now that the government was uh, freeing this income from the federal budget. And the federal budget, now that it couldn't tax the higher tax brackets, had to tax uh, the middle class as a whole by uh, wage withholding for Social Security and medical care.
0: Now, is it true that Alan Greenspan is proud of this legacy? Uh, now, you talked about the Greenspan Commission in 1982. Was it then that, and this was before he became chairman of the Fed, Right. Uh, was it at that time that Social Security became essentially a tax and not a benefit from the government?
1: That's exactly what happened. Uh, he presented it as a user fee. In most countries, like Europe, for instance, Social Security would be paid on a pay-as-you-go basis. In other words, it would be paid out of the general budget. Just like when you go to war, uh, the Iraq war is being paid out of the general budget. There is no special, uh, war tax and say, we have to save up enough money so that we can afford to pay the trillion dollars for the, uh, uh Iraq war out of uh, the interest. Uh, there's no attempt to pre-save for the Iraq war. There's no attempt to pre-save for the tax cuts on the rich. So although in the last four years, Mr. Bush had said, I'm sorry, there's no money for Social Security. We've got to privatize it. Uh, We can't afford the trillion dollars because there's no money there. But there is a trillion dollars to cut taxes for the rich there is a trillion dollars to cut the estate tax and there's a trillion dollars uh to wage the iraq war why is there a trillion dollars for everything except to pay social security which is what people had expected the government to do back in 1982 well largely because uh greenspan pretended that paying social security was sort of like a savings account uh, what he tried to do was to confuse people and he did the same as head of the fed between a savings account and uh Running into debt and saving. He implied that instead of uh, people being able to expect to receive their pensions, Social Security, and medical care out of the general budget which at that time was financed largely by the highest tax brackets uh it had to be financed by the lowest tax brackets so that he could free the high tax brackets from paying and so he said okay it's a user fee you have to pay more into social security than uh what you get out of it and so uh the middle class paid about uh, over a trillion dollars into the social security accounts and then Mr. Bush said well of course what uh you think all along that social security trust fund holding of treasury bills That just means, uh, in reality, what that is, is the accumulated tax cuts for the rich that we've been able to make uh, the middle class pay for, and it really doesn't exist because it's all been spent on tax cuts for the rich, ha-ha, or there's no money to pay Social Security. And so uh, Bush himself said that everything that Greenspan had promoted for the Greenspan Commission was just a fiction. It was a euphemism. It was a pretense by calling it a user fee for Social Security instead of tax cuts for the rich and uh, abolition of the estate tax.
0: I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show: How Alan Greenspan's junk economic doctrine helped popularize junk mortgages. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, could you talk a little bit more about Greenspan's role before uh, President Ronald Reagan appointed him? the head of the Fed. Now, Greenspan was not a banker, was he?
1: No, he was, he'd was. begun as an economic consultant, and an economic consultant is basically an expert witness. And an expert witness is somebody who's able to go in and confuse the jury in courts in cases and pretend, for instance, there's always two sides to every case, and uh, each side will have an expert witness. One of those expert witnesses is trying to confuse the jury, uh, usually against the plaintiff, by saying that it's not the plaintiff's fault. Uh, were and uh, to make black look like white by using economic rhetoric and essentially greenspan uh, was known as An economic samurai. He'd uh, give the employer what they wanted and uh, would be able to produce statistics to defend any point of view. And uh, since his office was on Wall Street, obviously, he saw quite correctly that the people with the most money to hire expert witnesses were the people most in need of uh, hiring somebody who could use euphemism to sort of act as the public relations representative or public relations economist for the financial sector and that's what he was. Uh he began as a hack and worked his way uh up and uh with the Greenspan Commission of uh, Social Security in nineteen eighty two he graduated from being sort of a, a a private to uh a colonel at least. He'd shown that he was able to uh, uh pull off a big rhetorical ploy And uh, that made people think, well, we need someone like that who can use euphemism and uh, who can confuse people into thinking that uh, debt is wealth and uh, present debt creation as if it were wealth creation, which, of course, it is for the upper 10 percent who's getting the bottom 90 percent of the population into debt.
0: Now, was he the first non-banker that was appointed uh, chief of the Fed? Pretty much
1: uh... they didn't want a banker at that point they wanted someone for rhetoric because central banking all over the world people think that they're really in charge of money and that they're in charge of monetary policy they're not uh... the move towards central banking in the twentieth century has been an attempt to shift economic policy making away from the government away from the treasury into the commercial banks. So the job of the central banker has nothing really to do with understanding the economy. The job of the central banker is to confuse people about uh, what the financial and monetary economy is all about so that uh, they can essentially privatize and shift the credit creation monopoly out of the government's hands, into the hands of private bankers. So the bankers get to decide uh, who gets the credit and what they get credit for, not the Treasury, and uh, they get to convince governments to borrow from the banking system uh, or from creditors rather than creating their own credit as the U.S. government did, for instance, during the Civil War when it issued the greenbacks.
0: Well, Dr. Hudson, Ronald Reagan then appointed Alan Greenspan as chairman of the Fed, as we have mentioned. Now, you have written that as chairman of the Fed, Alan Greenspan was basically a lobbyist for the banks. Could you explain that?
1: The role of a central bank in every country is to be a lobbyist for the rich, a lobbyist for the commercial banking system against the Treasury, a lobbyist for uh, the wealthy against the middle class and against industry even. Uh, That's what makes central banks so different from the treasury that's supposed to represent industry and promote uh, long-term economic growth. So uh, when Greenspan said that he wasn't responsible for the real estate bubble, what he then said was all the government can do is regulate interest rates. And that's true. That's what central bankers now do, Uh, only regulate interest rates. Uh, But that's not what the Fed is supposed to do, and that's not what uh, monetary policy was supposed to be. When I was uh, getting my uh, degree in economics in the 1960s, I'll give you some examples. One thing that the Fed is supposed to do is oversee the terms on which credit is created. And uh, one thing that Greenspan did was he said, okay, we want to get the largest amount of debt relative to uh, what people can afford in other words a central banker in every country can be looked on as the debt lobby uh because banks make money by making loans and if you're going to represent the banks as their lobby you say how can we enable the economy to run further and further into debt, so that the banks can make more and more money. Well, there are a number of things Greenspan did. For instance, as most people uh, who are over the age of 50 know, uh, when you would take out a mortgage, you used to have to put down equity of your own. You'd have to put down uh, 20% normally of the price of any house. That means you'd have to save up out of your own money 20 percent or sell some stocks or bonds or somehow come up with that. Greenspan said uh, you don't have to uh, have any money at all down. And in fact, you can even have negative mortgages. And the Federal Reserve accepted this form of lending. He had the power to oversee sound lending practices and he didn't do it. So, uh, again, that has nothing to do with interest rates. That has to do with a down payment. Uh, another thing that the banks did to enable people to be willing to go into debt was uh, banks realized that uh, it takes two to tango. Uh, banks can't simply create money. They need a borrower. Somebody has to actually borrow from them to become their customer so that the banks can write an IOU uh, while it creates credit for their checking account. And so Greenspan not only lowered the interest rate, but he permitted banks to shift to adjustable rate mortgages, mortgages that would adjust in three years. Uh, It would begin at a fixed payment, but then there would be an adjustment after three years. And Greenspan said, that's okay. Uh, because the average American family moves every three years, so it doesn't matter. Uh, they'll be able to sell out by the time the rates are really readjusted and hopefully uh, make their uh, uh, capital gain on their house, which of course isn't a capital gain at all, it's a gain in land value. Finally, uh, Greenspan uh, let banks. Uh, issue teaser rates in other rates, very nominal rates, like 1%, 2% uh, for a while. And so a bank officer would sit down with a prospective borrower and uh, be able to uh, convince the borrower that they could actually afford to take out a large enough mortgage loan to buy the property that uh, the biggest property they could afford by saying, Well, look, you only have to pay this month every month under this teaser rate. Uh, see, you can afford this mortgage. And then, of course, after the teaser rate were over, the uh, monthly payment would jump way up into the higher interest rate. This was a trick. And they've now found that uh, this was not spelled out to uh, borrowers, uh, most notoriously in the subprime loans, but even in the uh, classification A loan over the subprime loan. uh, The bankers misrepresented how dangerous the borrower was living on the edge. And uh, the Federal Reserve could have forbidden that. They could say the Federal Reserve is supposed to oversee the terms on which bank's loan. This doesn't have anything to do with setting the overall discount rate or the federal funds rate. This is a bank oversight function, and uh, the Greenspan deregulated. And deregulation is another word for letting people do whatever they want. In other words, crooks love deregulation because deregulation means that a crook can come in and say anything they want, and uh, there's no regulator to prevent them from uh, doing something crooked. Uh, But then the worst thing that uh, Greenspan did was that he became the cheerleader uh, for uh, the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act.
0: With regard to the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act, could you talk about the meeting between Travelers and Citibank that led to this repeal?
1: I think the meeting you're referring to occurred in the summer of 1997. Uh, This is after uh, already about 20 years of campaigning by uh, Wall Street in general to try to repeal Glass-Steagall. Sandy Weil was head of Travelers Insurance Company. And uh, he wanted to merge with uh, JP Morgan. Uh, that was just before Morgan merged with a Chemical Bank. But the deal didn't go through, so he was looking for another kind of a merger. And uh, in the fall of 97, uh, Travelers Insurance had bought uh, Solomon Brothers, an investment bank, for $9 billion. And uh, Solomon then uh, merged with Travelers, uh, which owned the Smith Barney Brokerage Company. Now, since the not- 1960s, you'd had a huge merger movement in Wall Street. Uh, brokerage companies had all been merging with each other to get larger and larger. And people used to joke that at uh, the end of the whole process, there'd be only one broker, and that would be uh, Merrill Lynch. Well, it wasn't quite there yet, but uh, there were a lot fewer brokerage companies in uh, the late 90s than there were in the 1960s, and. Uh, uh the idea was not only would the brokerage companies begin to merge but they'd begin to merge into uh the financial and insurance and uh, all the financial sector would become vertically integrated as a whole which was just what Glass-Steagall had tried to prevent so in february of 98 there was a dinner in washington and Sandy Weil at Travelers invited John Reed who was the head of Citibank uh City Corporation to uh his hotel room to discuss a merger. And uh in March, while and Reed met again and at the end of two days talks, uh they said, "Well, it's a good idea. Let's merge, but there's a law against it." Well, uh John Reed for years had been uh issuing public relations uh, documents from uh Citibank. Their their economic research had been changed by the way from economic research to economic research and publications and had been largely a uh a public relations agency for free markets and for deregulation, uh, pressing for that. So in April of '98, Weill and Reed announced a $70 billion stock swap that was going to merge Travelers, which owned uh, Solomon Brothers Smith Barney, with Citicorp. Uh, and uh, what it owned. And this was the largest corporate merger in history. Now, the problem is how are you going to merge when it's against the Glass-Steagall Act? And it's also against the Bank Holding Company Acts that uh, were implemented precisely to stop uh this kind of uh a merger because they said once a bank owns insurance underwriting and securities underwriting, all of a sudden it's going to be able to make loans by the bank and sell up to the underwriting group and the underwriting group will sell up to outsiders and uh the banks won't be liable for they won't have to hold their loans anymore they can uh, get it off their books and onto the books of other people and end up sticking uh, the weakest uh, investors with it. And the weakest investors, uh, in this case, are labor through its pension funds. So at this point, Weil called Alan Greenspan and other Federal Reserve officials saying, you've got to help uh, us get rid of this Glass-Steagall Act that is not letting us act like crooks. I don't think he said act like crooks. What he said was uh, this preventing us from pushing the envelope uh, or whatever. So he later told the Washington Post that Greenspan indicated a, quote, positive response, unquote. So uh, Greenspan said, okay, I'll help you get rid of these financial laws uh, that block it and use all of my prestige as head of the Fed uh, and saying, look, if you want to keep on uh, creating wealth, uh, you've got to uh, dismantle the regulation that's preventing collusion between banks and uh, Wall Street. So the hard thing was to get the corporate lawyers together to structure the merger so that it conformed to a number of precedents that the Fed had been issuing in interpreting the Glass Steagall Act and the Bank Holding Company Act as if somehow it's uh okay to do this and uh, they sort of said, Well there's still a few problems. We've got to get Congress to change the laws because there's no way we can do uh this merger in keeping with the act as it is. So, uh under the law as it stood, Citibank was allowed to make the merger but it was told you have 2 years to divest yourself of the Travelers insurance business and you know maybe the fed will give you a 3 year extension uh and you've got to divest yourself of the Wall Street brokerage companies they have and so they said, okay, we're going to merge. Uh, the $80 billion merger went through. And then, rather than trying to sell off these uh, affiliates, these vertical integrated affiliates that were monopolies, they uh, began to step up their lobbying effort, meaning more and more money to the campaigns of senators and representatives on the House, Senate and House banking committees, so that you could have the banking committee say, okay, we'll, uh, we'll support this uh, dismantling of the New Deal legislation. And essentially, you had the Republicans and the uh, Democrats, but especially the Democrats, come in and say, well, we don't want big government when it comes to finance. Uh, what we want is essentially we want a totally centrally planned economy. Uh but the Clinton the Democrats didn't want the government in charge of a centrally planned economy. They wanted Citibank, travelers and Wall Street to be in charge of a centrally banked economy. So essentially Clinton said, and I'm paraphrasing, we're stepping out of the picture as government planner, we're turning it over to the financial sector. We hope it doesn't screw you too badly. Uh I'm gonna pardon Mark Rich and resign. And uh, he didn't quite say it in those words, but that's, uh, how, that's my translation of uh, what he said. And uh, Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin and Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan uh, all sort of agreed on April 5th, the day before the announcement, to uh, uh, support all of this. And uh, that's how we got into the mess that we're in now.
0: I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, How Alan Greenspan's Junk Economic Doctrine Helped Popularize Junk Mortgages. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, with regard to the repeal of uh, Glass-Steagall and the vertical integration of all of these different financial services, essentially then what happens is that the original lender is no longer responsible for making a bad loan
1: that's right it used to be that when a bank would make a mortgage uh... the bank would keep the mortgage on its books and it would uh... get the income from the mortgage and out of this income it would pay interest to its uh, savings account holders and its depositors and uh... pay for its overhead uh... now that they're allowed to vertically integrate unlike before the bank didn't have to keep on holding this loan it could sell it to somebody else it could sell it to the government uh mortgage holding agencies like Fannie Mae uh, or it could sell it to one of its uh Wall Street affiliates the package, and the Wall Street affiliate could say, now we have a lot of mortgages that are uh, yielding a high interest rate because they're risky, but uh, we're going to uh, claim that they're uh, really not risky. Somehow, if you put all these risky mortgages together, it makes the package less risky. And uh, these uh, packaged mortgages that were miraculously made unrisky were rated AAA, meaning uh, the most risk-free you can be, by the main bond rating agencies, such as Standard & Poor's and Moody's and uh, Fitch and uh, so the banks would uh, make the loan they'd charge an origination fee they 'd get points, meaning we 're going to charge maybe two percent or three percent for originating it then we 're going to sell it to our Wall Street affiliate the package into a securitized debt obligation they were called, and uh, into a package of loans and the package of loans would then be sold off at yet a, a higher price to pension funds or to foreign buyers by the Wall Street affiliates and that meant that when the loans the mortgage loans weren't paid uh the bank uh who originated the loan didn't have to suffer because it didn't have it on the book. Uh, nobody knows who really is going to end up holding the bag, but it looks like uh, the Wall Street uh, packagers won't have to suffer because they said we don't own it. We just took a commission of two or three percent for for uh, packaging, and then our management uh, company will take two or three percent from uh, uh, the poor uh, hapless pension fund that bought these, or from the others. And it really is uh, whoever is left holding these hot potatoes of bad mortgage loans that are going to be taking the loss not us so in the last few weeks uh after you had the dollar collapsing as a result of foreigners just dumping all of their bad U.S. securities, and as you had uh, people worrying, gee, aren't the banks going to get in trouble for making these bad loans? Now you're having the bank stocks recover because the bank's saying, we haven't lost money. Ha ha. The people who bought these loans from us thinking that they were bona fide risk-free loans are the ones who've ended up losing the money.
0: Exactly. So the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act encouraged banks to make bad loans because the banks themselves were no longer responsible.
1: That's right. That was the result of deregulation. And it was a uh, result that could not have occurred if the Glass-Steagall's restrictions on vertical integration and conflict of interest had remained in place and that's why one of the first things that uh, the country needs after the next presidential election is a repeal of the repeal of Glass-Steagall, and the only candidate that I know who's supporting that is Dennis Kucinich.
0: Now, when you were talking about uh, the discussion of this in Congress and Phil Graham, you were saying that the repeal of this legislation was hanging on one vote.
1: Well, it was in the House it was passed by a vote of 214 to 213. So it passed by only one vote. In other words, after 25 years and $300 million worth of lobbying efforts, they finally got it passed by one vote. And as you know, ever since uh, President uh, Bush has come in, he said, it doesn't matter if we win by one vote. With one vote, it's done. It's a quantum leap. It's a phase change, and we have all the power. That's all we need. There's a new world. And that one vote, uh, instead of making a little bit of a new world, made a totally new world in the sense of the laws that governed how banks and the financial sector could operate.
0: Now, in 1999, when Travelers and Citibank got the green light from the Fed, Alan Greenspan, and from President Bill Clinton to go ahead and merge, You did mention They'd merged
1: already, but the uh, Financial Services Modernization Act said that uh, although they'd merged, they now didn't have to sell off their affiliates. They didn't have to do what they had planned not on doing all along. In other words, uh, in the past, they could have merged, but they would have had to sell off all of their uh, conflict of interest affiliates. Uh, In 1999, the Financial Services Modernization Act meant you can now have a conflict of interest and we don't care
0: exactly because the originally they were told they could merge but then they would have to sell off their affiliates Yes, but then in what in 1999 congress actually passed this uh, financial modernization act. We're not going to
1: regulate anymore. And it was a result of this deregulation that you've had the mortgage bubble, the real estate bubble, the subprime bubble breaking, and all of this was done by the Fed. So when Mr. Greenspan says all the Fed can do is lower interest rates, he's telling a deliberate lie uh, because what was he doing at the White House? He didn't go to the White House and tell Mr. Clinton, uh, gee, uh, all I can do is lower interest rates. he say, I'm going to throw all of my political weight behind you if you deregulate the economy, and I'll call you a good Republican. And that's just what he did. So, uh, what he actually did is just the opposite of what he said he did in his autobiography. And I can't believe, when I'm watching television, how these people all act as if somehow he brought in a boom and they accept what he says on his word. And that's like Uh, believing a chronic liar for what? uh, uh, taking them at their word. Can it really be that these reporters on national television don't have a clue about what he actually did? That they let him make up history before the camera and uh, applaud him as if somehow uh, he were other than a a mouthpiece for crooks?
0: Yes, I've noticed when I, I try and listen to him talk, you can't understand anything.
1: Well he used to brag about that because uh but the fact is, when you could understand it, he was saying, ever since his Ayn Rand days, I'm for deregulation, that uh, that government regulation is the road to serfdom. And what he really did was promote the road to debt serfdom instead of uh, the road to serfdom of government planning. That uh, government regulation isn't planning. Government regulation prevents the financial sector from planning how to rip you off. And in the advertisements, like in the 80s and 90s, uh, you'd have... Uh, a Citibank would have a big picture of the Citibank headquarters with all the lights on saying Citibank never sleeps. Well, it never sleeps because it's trying to figure out new ways to rip you off. And uh, uh, Greenspan was saying this is all wealth creation as if making Sandy Weil rich were a wealth creation for the whole country. When uh, Sandy Weil then went to the various... Uh, you, you remember the notorious case of uh, him going to a uh, Wall Street uh, dot com analyst and saying I can get your kid into kindergarten if you'll just give a good uh, report on AT and D. You had all this kind of leveraging that somehow the amazing thing is Well stayed out of jail, uh uh Greenspan stayed out of jail, even President Clinton stayed out of jail. And people are actually thinking of electing his wife as president instead of throwing her in jail. What kind of a country are we living in?
0: Now as well Alan Greenspan in uh publicizing his new book, The Age of Turbulence, he claims that globalization has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty.
1: It's, it's a system to impose poverty on the rest of the people. If it had lifted them out of the poverty, you would take the immense rise in labor productivity, and you'd say, now that labor productivity is going up so much, uh, they must have a life of leisure now they can have higher living standards why haven't the rest of the world and why haven't americans achieved living standards that reflect this enormous growth in productivity they have they haven't got the growth instead this growth has been siphoned off by the financial sector and the fire sector finance insurance and real estate so uh... you can say that GNP is going up But uh, what uh, the GNP has been increasing is increasing in fire sector employees, mortgage brokers, mortgage insurance companies, uh, real estate brokers, bankers, fund managers. It's almost all of this growth in income has occurred at the very top of the pyramid, not merely the upper 10% of the pyramid and not even the upper 1% of the pyramid most of this growth is in the 0.1% p- of the economic pyramid so uh this alleged growth of pulling people out of poverty uh what it's done is take away the security that they had before, for instance, there, over the weekend, uh, there was a Gallup poll that was released for the former members of the Soviet Union. And the vast majority of members of the Soviet Union say that now uh, they have worse housing than before, not simply that they have to pay much more for housing that used to be easily affordable and that uh, had a very low cost. It's actually worse than before. Now they have worse medical care. Now, remember what I said at the beginning of the broadcast that the largest elements of the american family budget are for housing medical care and debt now uh, all over the world you're having uh... what mr greenspan said look there's been a worldwide uh... real estate bubble what that means is that people have to go further and further into debt to obtain housing, further into debt if they have medical care. Ever since Sumerian and Babylonian times, ever since Greece and Rome, the main reason for families falling into debt bondage and having to become bond servants was because of infirmity. They got sick, or the husband was uh, in the army and was wounded in battle. Uh, medical care has been what is pushed people below the break-even line for the last uh, 4,000 years of recorded civilization. Now, uh, whereas this medical care used to be provided uh, in the Soviet economies, it used to be provided in Europe and in America, all of a sudden now if people get sick for the first time, they're in danger once again of falling below the break-even point and uh, ending up homeless, ending up out in the street, ending up losing everything that they have. And uh, part of that, again, I don't want to keep coming back to uh, the election campaign, but the only candidate for president that has proposed a single-payer national medical care is Dennis Kucinich. And that's why I've agreed to become his economic advisor. Nobody else, is, nobody else is saying these things. What kind of election is it when uh, the only person who's talking about things like this is someone who can't get press coverage and can't even get uh, into the debate, a debate that's sponsored by the AARP that has its own private uh, medical, uh, medical insurance program? It, it's bizarre.
0: That's right. And in your capacity as a chief economic policy advisor to the Kucinich for President campaign, you are writing, you're in the process of writing a new tax policy for the United States.
1: Yes. I'm meeting with the other advisors later this week. And uh, again, this is going to be at the American Monetary Institute conference in uh, Chicago. And we're going to uh, test out our uh, uh, tax program there. And we hope within about two months we should be able to come out with a, a book-length treatment of all of this that I'm in the process of writing right now.
0: I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, How Alan Greenspan's Junk Economic Doctrine Helped Popularize Junk Mortgages. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Another thing that I couldn't understand or I found very curious in the claims that Alan Greenspan is making in the Media Blitz over his new book is that he keeps talking about how uh, he was very worried about the surpluses, and uh, he doesn't explain why they were troubling him, but he uses that as an excuse for the fact that he supported uh, George W. Bush's extreme tax cuts for the very wealthy, and he supported those tax cuts on more than one occasion.
1: Well, in one sense, he makes sense when he worries about a surplus. In other words, traditionally, governments supply the economy with money and with purchasing power by running deficits. Every economy is supposed to be growing. And as it grows, it needs more money. And the the foundation of money in modern economies is government debt. So uh, the government has to provide the private sector with money by running enough of a deficit to uh, create government debt that serves as the monetary base. So in point of fact, his worrying that Clinton didn't need to run a surplus is quite right. Running a, a budget surplus for a government is deflationary and it's the proper task of a treasury to run a budget deficit in order to fuel economic growth uh but Clinton didn't want the economy to grow remember he represented he was proposed by the Democratic Leadership Committee and that's the Wall Street Republicans within the Democratic Party uh it's the Wall Street interests of finance against uh, the public at large so uh Clinton wanted to pursue a deflationary policy uh for the same reasons that he supported uh, Robert Rubin's privatization of the Soviet economy he He was for the kleptocrats, and in that sense, Greenspan would have worried, well, wait a minute, the economy certainly needs uh, some more deficits to grow. Of course, what the economy didn't need was the kind of a deficit that uh, the Bush administration ran. And the important thing is that Greenspan acted as if a surplus and a deficit were something in and of themselves that are good. It makes all the difference in the world what you're running the deficit for. And if you're running a deficit by Raising living standards, by investing in education, by building infrastructure, bridges, roads, and making America a competitive economy, that's a good deficit. But if you're running a deficit by cutting taxes on the rich, uh, cutting taxes on property, cutting taxes on corporations, so it's now easier for people to borrow money to buy out corporations, uh, sell them off, close them down, fire the labor force, and move industry overseas, that's a a different thing. Running a deficit to fight a war in uh, Iraq and say we're now going to be there for 50 years just like Korea and it's going to cost a trillion dollars and I'm afraid we don't have any money to pay Social Security, that's... A completely different kind of a deficit. Nowhere in mister Greenspan's writings do you have this distinction between a good deficit and a bad deficit. And you don't even have an understanding of the distinction between uh the Treasury's interest in fueling long term economic growth and the central bank's interest in deflating the economy, in stripping it to the bone and turning over the economic surplus to the banking sector and the financial sector of which central banks are the representative. Uh, that distinction has to be made that uh, what uh, Greenspan calls the economy really is two separate economies. You have uh, the economy of goods and services that's being shrunk by the government surplus and now being shrunk by the way in which the Republicans are running a deficit by going to war and cutting taxes for property and uh, an economy that's not shrinking. That distinction is not being made and, in fact, is being covered up.
0: Well, I don't understand now. Why can't the economy grow uh, with a government surplus?
1: It could. It could grow. Uh, in real terms, it could grow if the government were spending the surplus on building bridges, infrastructure, if the government were uh, making schooling affordable, if the government were making health care affordable. That, that's good. But at the same time, remember there are two economies, and the two economies isn't really rich and poor. It's the financial economy and property sector is distinct from the economy that produces the goods and services. The economy that produces goods and services needs credit, and that means the bank or the treasury, uh the private sector or the government sector has to provide credit to finance all of this uh specialization of labor. A growing economy needs more money, and the government running a deficit is what provides money uh to the economy. Randall Ray uh, has written a book in Understanding Money and uh the University of Missouri at Kansas City, uh, the Economics Department where I work, essentially Our task is to explain this to the people. Uh, Jeffrey Gardner has written a very good book on uh, finance. He's an English banker uh, who explains most of this. In a way, it would be a whole different uh, interview just to go over all of this. Uh, Jeffrey Ingham has written a book, uh, The Nature of Money, that explains that. uh, I I better not get into the academic bibliography now, because that would tend to be a, a whole other story. Uh, but the government has to provide uh purchasing power for the economy as a whole, and it does that by running deficits. That's why uh the main periods of growth were in the thirties and the nineteen sixties. Uh everything that John Maynard Keynes wrote about was that the government should prime the pump by running a deficit to provide the demand that is lacking from the private sector. And uh that's not being met right now. The private sector is starved of uh credit for actual new investment. The only credit that commercial banks our lending are takeover loans and uh, loans that essentially are more in the form of economic overhead than economic production.
0: Yes, I've heard it said many times that uh, a government running a deficit is very different from a private person running a deficit.
1: Yes, if if a private person runs a deficit, you're running down your bank account or you're running into debt. But the government, uh, nobody expects the government debt to be paid off. The dollar bills in your pocket are actually thrown off by the government running a deficit. And if the government were to uh, run a a surplus and there'd be no federal debt at all, and that happens. Happened around 1890, over a century ago, uh, all of a sudden the economy didn't have any money because uh, if the government doesn't have any debt, uh, there's no money because the money in your pocket is government debt. It's technically a debt to you, but it's money that no one ever expects it to be repaid. Uh, people need dollars, and the dollars that they spend are essentially monetized government debt.
0: Now, is there anything else essential, uh, in your opinion, that people need to know about the reign of Alan Greenspan as uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve?
1: Well, I think we've covered most of it. The sponsor of the real estate bubble. uh, Before that, the sponsor of the doc bubble, the sponsor of the tax increases on 90% of Americans in the form of uh, turning uh, Social Security from a benefit into a tax, uh, the uh, author of the dollar uh, collapse that's now happening. Uh, how much more can a single man do?
0: Would you like to say a few more words about uh, how Alan Greenspan effected the devaluation of the dollar?
1: Well, by deregulating the economy, he uh, broke the foreign investors' faith that the securities being sold, uh, the mortgages, the packaged uh, debt securities, uh, even the junk bonds, had anything real behind them. Uh, By defining free enterprise as the right to misrepresent risky securities as being uh, highly secure, Uh, he's made people frightened uh, to invest, and the balance of payments of America is not only the large uh, $800 billion trade deficit we have every year, it's also now the growing sale of U.S. assets by foreigners, is they've lost faith in the economy, and they've seen suddenly that what Mr. Greenspan pretended was wealth creation all these years was actually a financial bubble, and it was all done uh, with mirrors And uh, Greenspan uh, took away the need for the banking system to be responsible in lending by his lobbying pressure to repeal the Glass-Steagall Act. And uh so foreigners have lost faith. And once they've lost faith they realize that there's no way the United States uh is going to repay the two and a half trillion dollar uh treasury debt to foreign governments even if it wanted to repay and if it won't even repay what the treasury owns, and people used to think that at least governments always pay, if the government won't pay and the banks won't take responsibility for the mortgage loans that they've uh made in the subprime market and now uh, looks uh, also uh, the commercial market. Uh, If nobody's taking responsibility for the debts, uh, you're having a series of defaults, such as haven't occurred since the 1840s, when a number of uh, southern states uh, defaulted on their uh, uh, foreign state bonds. You're having a loss of faith in the American economy, such as the world uh, lost faith in the Asian economies in 1997 during the, uh, the Asian crisis. So uh, Mr. Greenspan, by calling that wealth creation and free enterprise, he's, he's paved the way for it. And now he's pretending that it's not uh, his fault, although he was trying to take credit for it in all those years while it was happening.
0: Uh, Dr. Michael Hudson, thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much. Something happening here. Yeah, yeah. what
2: it is ain't exactly clear, there's
0: I've been speaking with Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show has been How Alan Greenspan's Junk Economic Doctrine Helped Popularize Junk Mortgages. Dr. Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst, and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of The Myth of Aid and Global Fracture, The New International Economic Order. Dr. Hudson has been appointed Chief Economic Policy Advisor to the Kucinich for President campaign, and in that role he is writing a new tax policy for the United States. Visit his website at www.michael-hudson.com. That's www.michael-hudson.com. Guns and Butter is produced, edited, and mixed by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of shows, call 510-848-6767, extension 628 email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net
2: Hey yo, these are some serious times that we live in G, And our new world order is about to begin You know what I'm saying? Now the question is Are you ready for the real revolution Which is the evolution of the mind If you seek, then you shall find That we all come from the divine. the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall, cause love conquers all, you understand what I'm saying, this is a call for all you sleeping souls, wake up and take control of your own cypher, and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying, look what decides yourself. You dig me?